My name is Luke Naima. I'm the online editor of Granta Magazine. I'm here today with George Saunders, and we're going to talk about his latest novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. So George, do you want to tell us a little bit about what this book is about? Yeah, basically, I, uh, many years ago, I heard this story that Lincoln had uh, gone into the crypt of his son, uh, just after the son's death, and had been so moved that he'd actually had some interaction with the body and picked it up or touched it. And uh, it kind of grew to you know, be narrated by ghosts. Uh, part of this, the methodology is kind of these uh, sort of samples of historical text. So, but basically it's just the night in the graveyard and kind of wh uh, why does he do it? Why does he stop? And then whether or not there's any real consequences for these undead that are kind of surrounding him. A large part is narrated by the voice of the ghosts, and then, as you said, there's the snippets from from books and right. essays and diaries and things like that. But those also kind of become almost like little voices, little dialogue right, forms. Right. A, a former student of mine, Adam Levin, who's a wonderful novelist, mm. he said to me, "I think if you ever wrote a novel, it would be in the form of mo a series of monologues." And as soon as he said that, I thought, "Oh yeah, I could do that." You know. Yeah. So it's basically I, the way I thought of it was it's a, it's really just a series of monologues, but some of the speakers are ghosts, some of the Speakers are historical uh, voices. Some are invented historical voices, but just to basically a montage of all these voices. Yeah, and how do you get started with those points of view? I mean, you're you're so deep in these characters' minds, and you know these ghosts' mm -hmm. minds, and Lincoln's mind as as well. So, yeah. I mean, where did you? Well, my you approach start? is all. I I learned this a long time ago at great cost. Is I if I start from a conceptual viewpoint, or mm -hmm. uh, even an aspirational or thematic viewpoint, I I come to a dead end and I can't mm. do it. So the real idea was just at any given time to sort of say, okay, I need a ghost stage left and mm. just turn my attention there with as little uh, intention as possible. Just almost like you're trying to listen to this figure. Uh, it, it really is a form of verbal improv mm -hmm. and the what you're banking on there is that your subconscious is far enough ahead of you that the voice it provides will not be random. There's a graveyard look around and see who you hear and what you, what you see yeah. and so on. Yeah. But it's also kind of historical fiction, so we're in the 19th century. Yes. So how, how did you approach that kind of change in diction? I yeah, I mean, that would have been a, that, a challenge, you know, right? One of the uh, ideas is that if you have a problem in a story, it's yeah. a great friend to you. The yeah. problem is where is the story asking you to go deeper. So first I went, oh God, and then I thought, oh good, that'll be great. You know, it's it, a challenge. It makes me stretch, yeah. But you, you also do inject these um, primary sources into the text, so actual letters and yes. um, essays, and I think some of those you kind of made up yourself and some of them are, are the real deal. That's right. Yeah. I had this idea 20 years ago and it mm -hmm. messed around with it a little bit, done some background reading, and at some point as I was telling the story through the point of view of the ghosts, I it felt like I needed some historical stuff because that's where the emotional push came for me, knowing mm -hmm. the backstory. So then it was again a question of how do I do it, and uh, I, I think the best weapon I have is or maybe any writer, if something bores you or makes you feel bummed out, mm -hmm. then don't do it. And that's actually what structure is. Structure is avoiding the stuff that bums you out. Mm. Or that you, when you go to do it, you think, oh God, i got to go to work today. Yeah. So in this case, the idea of kind of rewriting the historical sources in some kind of third-person omniscient voice was just like, oh, kill me, I don't want to do it. No, good. I, I asked myself at one point, how do, you, you know, how do you know the history? I'm like, well, I read it in history books. Mm. And some little wise voice said, well, just sample it, just do a data dump. Am I allowed to invent a historical source? And again, mm -hmm. the answer is, well, you, you, it's fiction, you can do whatever you like. So then it became really uh, interesting the way that those sections could be used um, 
sort of to counterweight the, the reader's innate disbelief in the ghost. Mm. You know, you have a chapter of ghosts with strange appendages and crazy stuff going on. And just when the reader's starting to say, eh, I don't know, you bring in Doris Kearns Goodwin, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and even as I was rereading, it would sort of uh, reposition you in the mode that receives fact. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a great contrast between where those uh, voices are coming from. But again, structurally, the way you deploy them, that they're these kind of fragments and fragments of narration. Right. Kind and of I like the deploy is, is just the right word. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. And you're, I think you're kind of in a, in any fictive enterprise, you're sort of in, in a engagement with the reader's skepticism. Mm. It's natural that she would have it. Well, once you know that, you can kind of work with it a little bit and deploy, you deploy whatever you yeah. have. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wide-ranging cast, and I think mm. there's something like a 160, 166 different voices right, throughout right. the book. So did you go into it knowing you'd have such a huge scope, or is it no. something that kind of... It just evolved. It yeah. just evolved. Yeah. Which is sort of how you make the voices, because you, you mm. say, okay, I'm on page 50, I've done this, 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 and this, so I can't do those things again. Mm. And then it becomes sort of reaching into, like Mary Poppins, you know, she reaches yeah. into her bag and pulls out something else. But mostly, what, especially with the ghosts, the, the difference had to do with this question of why are they still in this, you know, graveyard. Yeah. Uh, well, the book says it's because they're some base unhappiness. So then you could say, what are you unhappy about? Mm. And then they would tell you, and then ask them that. I mean, the afterlife is something that comes into quite a lot of your short stories, mm -hmm. and usually at the edges, and towards the end of the story, someone dies, and mm -hmm. then the story keeps going, and you, you right. give us these epiphanic moments. Mm -hmm. I don't know, did you feel comfortable there? Was it something well, you needed really to... I felt really too comfortable. Too yeah. comfortable, But yeah. I think, you know, for me, the, uh, all along the way, the, the ghosts and the sci-fi and all that, mm -hmm. it was never really, a, you know, a sort of a theoretical or a thematic thing. It was really yeah. just... Uh, I have a real aversion to a story that doesn't have, by my light, sufficient energy. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a matter of how do I get sufficient energy into this work, you know. For me, the answer is always, actually, it's always line to line. You know, if you're in a boring section, uh, I, I had a story called ComCom in uh, the third book, and I had a kind of a, a scene that, to me, had become a little familiar. It's a, a guy who's not, who's not married in a house with his parents, and I had written that scene before, uh, mm -hmm. and I just felt, ah. What I did was I said, oh, these are, his parents are dead. Mm. So it's even just that little switch somehow energized the scene. We have a painting in our house that a, a friend of my daughter's did, and it's a really wild kind of bacchanal type of scene. And uh, it's got uh, a flying, some flying pork chops in it, yeah. you know. And so he came to the house, and, and I said, oh, what, what was the thinking behind the flying pork chops? He said, well, they weren't in there, and it just looked not energetic enough. <laughs> so he threw in some... Yeah, no, I, and I think yeah. that's actually, you know, uh, in my work, that's always been a good thing. If, if the work isn't energetic, that means you're denying something, or you're coasting, you're on autopilot somehow. Mm -hmm. you, you know too well what it is. It, even just, uh, sometimes just a random interjection of some pork chop will energize the, the field of the story, and that means it also... Uh, takes the story into new thematic territory, new philosophical territory. So yeah. as a kind of a basic writerly uh, move to uh, refuse to have a de-energized text yeah. and then to recognize that the way you energize it is often quite small. It's, it's a, a phrase taken or put out or a slight conceptual shift. You know? It's a small change, but in a way kind of setting everything in the afterlife is quite a huge challenge because you have to kind of imagine what that would be like right. and put people there. I mean, it's. The title of the book is Lincoln and the Bardo. So, I mean, what is the the Bardo? Are these 
characters are. Well, the bardo is a, a Tibetan word that just means transitional state. So that yeah. was kind. Of, it's kind of roughly purgatory, except yeah. purgatory is a little stricter. You know, per, yeah. my understanding is you just go go to sit on that bench until the end of days, and God will come and get you. You know, and that's, yeah. But but the bardo, at least the one I made, which departed pretty significantly from the actual or the the one in the text. That bardo is uh, a little more transactional. You, know, you, you you're there partly because you don't understand that you're dead, uh, because you were killed or you died in a state of regret or longing or unhappiness. So, in there is a way out. You, it basically, mm-hmm. you know, as is the case in our life here, if you recognize what you are, you can you can sort of free the demons a little bit. So, in this realm, if they can recognize that they're dead, they can leave. Uh, also, if they can have some insight into the fact that their attachment to life is really not meaningful, you know, that's all over now. Time, time. And I guess it comes back to a kind of fundamental compassion or understanding, and these these kind of ghosts have to understand themselves and almost yes. empathize with themselves in order to move on that's to right. a more positive. Yeah. And you know, also uh, they they they're in the same situation we are. They yeah. they think they're alive. And they're dead. Likewise, I mean, you know, we think we're alive. We think we're central. We think we're permanent. We think we'll be here six thousand years yeah. from now. Uh, so I guess if if you had to make a, a connection, it would be that if we could more fully realize what we actually are, yeah. the world would transform. And I think a lot of our our uh, problems would they might not go away, but they would be understood in a different way. Yeah, it's it's not a simple thing either. I mean, love and compassion in the book. When we think of the character of Abraham Lincoln, and he he goes to visit his son, um, and it's his love for his son that makes Willie Lincoln kind of linger in right. the afterlife, and that sets up the the engine of the the book, the tension, That's right. which is that maybe he you know his soul will be lost, and maybe right. he'll be stuck right. there. So yeah, because Lincoln has, I mean, to simplify, Lincoln has an attachment for his kid that's putting him in this kind of inappropriate place. Yeah. The kid has an attachment for his father and his previous life that's putting him in a different yeah. situation. So the the bardo, the transition is, can both of them kind of break through to where mm-hmm. you know, sort of a, an acceptance of the truth that will that be liberating for them. And and then there's this kind of parallel between that and what's going on in Lincoln's head at the moment when he's thinking about the Civil War and thinking about. The human cost of that war, yeah, yeah. and I mean, there, there are these kind of harrowing moments when he's thinking, "Can it be worth this much death? You know, yeah. will this be the greater good?" Yeah, when I read about the Civil War, you know, you, you, you uh, it's, of course, it becomes very black and white in your, in your mind. But you think about you're out on a in a pasture in Pennsylvania, and forty thousand yeah. people are ripped apart and die in a day. You're Lincoln. Mm-hmm. It, you're sort of the person leading it. You're bumbling a little bit. Uh, and it seems that you could maybe negotiate your way out of it. Mm. You know, the, I don't think for uh, certainly we've repainted the story in a very simple way, but at the time it must have been incredibly mm-hmm. terrifying. And he was certainly catching a lot of grief from the whole country. And you yeah. put some of that in the book. Yeah. I mean, there's a section of, of letters of people just slagging him off and just oh. saying how bad a job he's doing. There's a wonderful book called The Unpopular Mr. Lincoln by Larry yeah. Tag, and it's a 300 page book of of non-stop trolling of, yeah. of Lincoln, you know. So, so here's a guy who didn't, you know, he, not only was he new to the job, new to the national scene, he was screwing up and he knew mm-hmm. it. And every time he screwed up, there would be 10,000, 20,000 uh, dead kids and a lot of unrest in the North, more than we remember. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, it could easily have gone another way where he would have been impeached or assassinated early. The Civil War would have maybe stopped or... Uh, if you put yourself in the head of a, a father whose son is off to the war, 
mm. for union. I don't really want my kid dying for an abstraction, you know, let them let go, let the Confederacy go. You, you can make a good case for that, especially when you multiply it times 50 or 60,000. Then you turn around and you think, yeah, but meanwhile down in the South, there's a kind of a quasi-genocide that's been going on for 200 years. Mm -hmm. um, that's unacceptable. So I think his position was really uh, terrifying. There, there yeah. was no answer that wasn't vastly violent. And he was the guy who had to decide which violence he was going to enact. The novel said about a year before the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. and there's this kind of scene where one of the um, black uh, ghosts kind of gets in his head and says, you have to do something for us. Or mm -hmm. What I found, this is the first novel I've written, and what yeah. I found out is, you know, if you think of a story as uh, the writer throws a bunch of bowling pins in the air and catches them. Yeah. This a book like this, it's a lot more pins than usual. And what I found was they come down uh, of their own accord in the pattern that they want to come down in. So that scene uh, presented very late in the game, and I thought, oh, that's weird, what does it mean? And then I remembered that in, in real life, Lincoln had been sort of, early in life, kind of a standard Illinois mm -hmm. racist, really. Yeah. Then he said, well, we, I'm against slavery, but I want to save the Union. If, if permitting sl slavery will save the Union, I'll do it. Then in the last two years, there was a kind of a radical change where he actually he I think envisioned true racial equality uh, and there was an incident that two things had happened one was he had a meeting of uh, African-American leaders in Washington DC the purpose of the meeting was to sell them on the idea of repatriation to Africa mm. so it's described as the the one time Lincoln was truly humiliated and embarrassed because he invited these men in and basically they said look we've been here as long as you have this is our country Mm -hmm. uh, and they made very persuasive arguments, and after that he never mentioned it again. I think he was deeply he was, he was shamed deep, by what yeah. he proposed. Then later there was a possible peace treaty uh, in the works. They could end the whole thing, but the South's terms were, we're going to return everything back to 1860, which meant mm -hmm. the slaves go back into slavery. And he, by that time, had met uh, black veterans and heard of their heroism, and they were being uh, slaughtered on the field of battle after, by the South after they yeah. surrendered. And he said, I just can't do it, you know. So, so that kind of um, move where Lincoln became the great emancipator, but he was also greatly emancipated by African Americans. That seemed to me true to that last scene. You know, he was yeah. going to, his sorrow, his personal sorrow, had a pers I think had a persuasive effect on his attitude towards everything. And at the same time, he was having this off-the-page conversation with African Americans, and he was thinking about what they were, and that was getting into his heart and informing what he would do later. Yeah. yeah. I had this line that I, I pulled out. Um, a black slave goes who gets in a fight with a um, plantation over mm -hmm. owner, the slaver, and they start fighting and they kind of they stop and they forget what they were doing and then they just start fighting again. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that they're going to do it into eternity and right. you say uh, they, will, they will continue fighting unless some fundamental and unimaginable unimaginable alteration of reality should occur. Mm -hmm. It's a sense of this kind of Sisyphean fight. Yes. Were you thinking of, of the ongoing problems with, with Yeah, race I was thinking now? of Ferguson. I mean, yeah. that if you, and those two people in the book, there's a, the, he's a, I mean, it, that slaver died about 30 years before, so he's yeah. locked into that mentality, and he absolutely refuses to uh, assent to any kind of equal basis. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a man and cultured in his time, it makes sense to him. You know, it's, it's totally insulting that the slave should be striking him, then the slave is a, a young man who um, too late realized that he had to resist. 
So he died in the state of slavery, and now he's mad as hell about it. Yeah, he he can't back down. So until something fundamentally ch changes, this fight is eternal. Um, I think with the first time I wrote that, I thought, ah, but it's going to happen soon, mm. the war. And then I thought, well, it's going to partially happen. And then in history, the reconstruction was botched terribly. Yeah. And so, so when I finished the book, I, I had a very lively sense that the Civil War was still going on. Yeah. Then the rise of Trump, and you see that those issues of uh, racism and separatism and so on, they, they never went away. They always yeah. simmer a little bit, and they come and go. You know? so, that, so the book brought the period alive, and then actual history brought the period alive. Yeah, I mean, it, it's incredibly... Um, appropriate for the moment, yeah. and that sense of civil war and you know, one side against another and locked in an opposition, yes, which they yeah. can't. And you know, you, bridge. And when you read about that period, you realize that it was really a lock. They, yeah. People were so articulate and so uh, such beautiful writers, mm -hmm. and it didn't make a bit of difference. The uh, the emotional patterns were so strong, nothing was going to be negotiated, and so you get that kind of terrible sense that it has to be blood. It has yeah. to, and, and Lincoln laid in his life that that was sort of his thing was I, I'm not sure I believe in God, but something is willing this thing to happen. If God wanted this to stop, he could stop it. Mm -hmm. He's not, so therefore we must be almost like you know untying some kind of karmic knot, yeah. uh, which I think is the highest way he saw all this bloodshed. Not that he was in favor of it, but it seemed that it was uh, almost like a bloodletting in a certain way. Necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some necessary de facto because it kept going on. Yeah. Mm. What, what did you learn from writing this book? What was the, the biggest takeaway you had? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it, wasn't, it was to be in that st the state of writing this book for four years. And basically, you're trusting form, uh, and you're trusting in, I always call it the subconscious, and that might be the, not the correct term, but this artistic mind. You trust in that. Uh, and it's mostly, for me, it's accessed by intuition, by iteration, by showing up every day in a faithful mm -hmm. state of mind. And it rewards you, you know. So I think what I took away most uh, was just a, a kind of a renewed faith in the vigorousness of art. That art is not some little side room we go into, but it's the human mind, uh, fully, fully operative. Mm -hmm. So not so really. I mean, in short, I just want to go back to it again. You know, it's a, it, it uh, felt like I got more capable during that four years. Mm -hmm. uh, m more of myself showed up in the book than previously. So that's yeah. pretty intriguing, you know. So I hope to just go back to the well again and see how much I can find there. Yeah, well, I hope you do soon. I hope so too. Well, yeah. Thanks for coming in, George. Such it's a been pleasure. Great to Thank talk you. To you. Yeah.